Okay, so <laughs> we learned about the difference between the trait of the Bainani and the trait of the Tzaddik, that the Bainani is able to set aside how they feel in order to act, speak, think, and even feel as they should feel in their service of Hashem because they're aware, because they're in touch with the, the deep bond they have with Hashem, the, the hidden love, the innate love. In contrast, the tzaddik is someone who is able to achieve a love of Hashem, a kind of divine bliss like the world to come, which transforms their animal soul to the point, or at least subject animal to the point, that they find anything ungodly repulsive and disgusting. Okay? And so we have these two different kinds of ways of growing and serving Hashem. One is to strengthen our bond with Hashem, our desire to be connected to Hashem, that allows us to overcome all of the negative aspects of our animal soul. That's the trait of the Bainani. And then there is to experience the divine bliss in such a way that we become removed from any sort of attachment to anything ungodly, and that is the trait of the tzaddik. Yes? And we said that in order to treat the trait of the tzaddik, you have to have the appropriate kind of soul and be granted the divine love of bliss and blah, 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 blah. That's a technical term, by the way, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now, context. The altar started the Tanya by quoting a statement of the sages that a person is given an oath before they are born, and it is a double oath. The oath is, so actually before that, an oath, there's deeper mystical meanings behind an oath. I don't want to talk about the deeper mystical meanings behind the oath. I just want to talk about the fact that it's an oath. What is an oath? Promise. It is something you are obligated to do. If you fail to do so, it is considered to be a, a sin. Is a grave sin, okay? So if one takes an oath to do something and then one fails to do so, they are a sinner, okay? I didn't realize how hard it was. I believe the technical term for that is too bad. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Right. We're, gonna, we're gonna make a lexicon of technical philosophical terms. All right, okay. My favorite, by the way, is how do you say creation ex nihilo in the proper philosophical sense? Poof. There you go. Okay. That's my, my favorite philosophical terms. Poof. Okay. So there are two oaths. One oath is Tehei Tzadik. Be a... And the other oath is Al Tehei Russia. Do not be a... Russia. So a Russia is a person whose animal soul overcomes their godly soul, thus manifesting itself in sinful behavior. Whether it is halachic sin, such as violating the law, or non-halachic sin, doing something which drives one further away from Hashem, even though it is technically permitted. Either way, those are symptoms of being a Russia. We, we, we take an oath before we're born not to be a Russia. In addition to that, or actually before that, we take an oath to be a tzaddik. A tzaddik is someone who, because they experience this closeness with Hashem, the divine bliss, they feel no positive feelings whatsoever to anything ungodly. So now, given what we've explained about the idea that there's the trait of the baini, the trait of the tzaddik, not everyone achieves being a tzaddik, no one's capable of achieving being a tzaddik, we can now understand, we're in the text, the paragraph that has the little 22 of Tevet in the beginning, on page 62. Now we can understand the redundancy of the oath, be a tzaddik and be not wicked, which is unintelligible at first glance. Since he is warned, be righteous, where is there a need to put him on oath again that he should not be wicked? Okay? The idea is that if you are a tzaddik, you are obviously not a Russian. If you find the notion of anything ungodly, despicable, repulsive, and abhorrent, 
obviously you are not going to do anything which leads you further away from Hashem, right? So if you are a tzaddik, by default you are not a rasha, okay? Is the one supposed to make redundant oaths? No. No. Here's an interesting question. Should one make an oath to keep Shabbos? I swear, so to speak, not really, that I will keep Shabbos from now on. Should one make such an oath? Why not? Because you're already obligated. Because you're already obligated. We don't make oaths for things you're already obligated to do. Why? Because the idea of an oath is creating a... Oh, obligation. Yes. So I always find it funny to say, I'm going to take on keeping kosher. I'm like, um, I hate to break it to you, but regardless of whether you take it on or not, you are already obligated. No, no. So, in, right. An oath is, an oath has, there's many rules about an oath. One of the rules about an oath is that an unnecessary oath is also a sin. On a simple halachic level, it's considered a desecration of God. Because you're using name? That's the ideal way to make an oath, but it's also, it also cheapens the idea of an oath altogether. So, making an unnecessary oath, making a, an impossible oath, and are sinful just like making an oath that you are not actually going to fulfill. Okay. So why is there a double oath? Why is there an oath to be a tzaddik and then again an oath not to be wicked? Okay. The answer is that inasmuch as not everyone is privileged to become a tzaddik, nor has a person the full advantage of choice in this matter to experience true delight in God and to actually truly abhor evil, he is consequently injured a second time, you shall at any rate not be wicked. So the idea being is, can you guarantee that you will be a tzaddik? No, why not? What is the gift that's granted? What do you have to be granted? The experience of divine bliss, right? Love, love that is ecstatic love of divine bliss, right? Like experiencing anything. And in order to receive that, you need to have the kind of soul which is capable of relating to God in a way that makes you worthy of that gift, right? If you don't have said soul, or even if you do have said soul, can you guarantee that you will receive that gift? There's two elements here. One is... Maybe you don't have the requisite soul, so you can never become worthy for the gift. Even if you have said soul, because it's a gift, as we emphasized last week, can you ensure that you will end up receiving that state of divine bliss? Even if you're capable of being worthy. Okay, so you look here and you'll see in the text, it says not everyone is privileged and not everyone really has true choice in the matter. Now, you have some degree of choice because you could do the things that in theory make you worthy of receiving the gift. So, what is the need for the second oath of not to be a wicked, not to be a Russia? Why do we need it? Why, why, is, why is a Jew made to take on this separate obligation of not being wicked? What's the answer? To plan B. To plan B. Okay, now, that's going to be a bit problematic because are you still obligated for plan A? Did you take an oath to be a tzaddik? Okay, so we're going to have to come back to that. But the idea being is that you may not be able to actually fulfill the obligation to be a tzaddik, so therefore there's a plan B. At the very least, at the bare minimum, don't be a rasha, i.e. to be a benini. Now, I would like everyone to stop at this point. How does the altar of a seed being a benini then? A bare minimum. That's an interesting way of thinking, right? So can you think of examples in life where something is a bare minimum, but it's really not what we aspire to? 
What would be an example of something in life we aspire to A, but a bare minimum B? To give us a feel for how we should take these two oaths. Be a good person, but a bare minimum Yeah, right. Maybe you don't ever become, you know, one of these noble, heroic people that sets your life aside for the well-being of a perfect stranger, but at least don't be a jerk, right? That's basically how the author was reading this thing. You should, you should work and aspire to be a person who finds no positive energy in their relationship with anything ungodly. But you know what? If for whatever reason you don't get there, you can't get there, you're not capable of getting there, or Shem doesn't grant you the gift even though you're worthy for the gift, at the very least, have your priorities straight. Nothing should come between you and God because the most important thing to you is your connection to Hashem. Yeah? Do many people aspire to be wealthy? Okay, but what's a bare minimum? Not being poor. What? To pay your bills. To be able to pay your bills. Can you make sure that your expenses are paid for? Your day-to-day living expenses are paid for? That's like a minimum, right? Okay. What? That's right. And so it's like, the altar, this is very important. Going forward, does the altar think we should aspire to be a Bainani? No. no. If you're aspiring to a Bainani, you failed. Okay, I'm going to give you an analogy. When you are hunting, not that you actually should hunt, where should you aim your gun if you're hunting? What? Cannibals? Animals. Animals. You should aim them at animals. <laughs> no, you don't aim your gun at animals. Isn't that like a little in front of them? So that right. You, you, aim, you aim the gun where the animal will be. Right. That's... Because the animals tend to be moving. I wasn't wrong. You just added my... No, but this is, this, is, this, is, this is key. This is key. This is key. Like... Right. Is that right? This is the... the, the, the so it, when, you're, when you're educating somebody, when you're educating somebody, you don't talk to them where they're at. You talk to them... Where there will be, where they should be, where they're supposed to get to. Well, you want to hold both in, right, where they are and their potential. Yes, but so, so the thing is, you have they have to hear what you're saying. But so when right, so but the idea is that you're 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 not. It has to reach them, but what you want to reach them is it's going to reach them at a place where they're where they're, where where it brings them to where they're supposed to be. So you don't want to like reduce everything down to where they're currently holding. That's not really educating. Many things in life, if you aim for the minimum, what ends up happening is you don't achieve the minimum. Okay? When you, if you shoot, if you aim at the animal, you won't hit the animal because by the time you fire, the animal's going to be somewhere else. So you have to aim where the animal is going to be. So the Rebbe Shab uses the following, this idea in the following way. He says, there's many lofty things in the service of Hashem. So for instance, last week in... Um, in questions and answers, we spoke at the end of the class about Nugunim. Do you recall that, those of you who are here? Okay. And we spoke about Nugunim, and I explained what Nugunim are and what they're so significant and the kind of reverence and sacredness ascribed to Nugunim and Chabad. Um, and it's very lofty, yes? The average person can really, like, sing a niggin in a way that they're really connecting to what I described last week? No. Yeah. So what should they rather do? They should just turn on their favorite Avram Fried song or whatever and like feel in a good mood and, and you know 
go serve Hashem with joy. Or, what's the other possibility? You try. You try. Right? You aspire for something lofty, and at the bare minimum, what? That your, that your use of music in your life is something that has to become much more holy and purposeful. Right? There's an idea that when you aspire to something lofty, even if you do not achieve it, your whole way of relating to the minimum is you relate to the minimum properly. You relate to it as a minimum. Okay? One of the reasons, and this is something I, I, I don't often like share my own personal bias on the table, but one of the things that I think is, is very distorted in the way um, people relate to the idea of being a Baini is while it is true when describing a Baini, a Baini seems very lofty, that is the reason why we fail to be a Baini. Because we are looking up at what it is to be a Baini rather than looking down. Now, I, I, not that I'm a Tzadik, not that you're a Tzadik, right? But there's a way of, right? when a person has a sense of, I aspire to this, and whether I get there or not, I don't know. But, but from that place, you look at something much lower, you start to relate to that as much more of attainable, achievable, and necessary. Someone who's really working on being a good person, the idea of not being a jerk is, becomes very, very grounded, very, very absolute. The person who's working on not being a jerk has all sorts of leadings. Why today I was in a bad mood and yesterday I didn't sleep and the day before this. It, it alters the, the, the flavor, the context, and turns something which we're supposed to work on and expect of ourselves into something that we think is above us. So even before we go forward and we say, well, we still are obligated to be a tzaddik. The idea that we, should, we are commanded to, or we take an oath to be a tzaddik, meaning we aspire to be a tzaddik, changes how we relate to the whole idea of being a bani, being a bani at the very least, not to be a bani. And this is actually the, 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 the elder chassidim would say that Really, all of service Hashem is involved with answering three questions. What ought to be? What is? And what will be? What ought to be is that we ought to be a tzaddik. What is is that we are currently... What's the word we were looking for here? A Russia. And that tension means that what will be going forward is I will no longer be a Russia. I will at the very least be a Bainani. There's a very different way of looking at Bainani, right? You're starting from, this is what ought to be. The situation it is is completely unacceptable at the very least being a Bainani. And that changes something. When you look at something that way, relate to something that way, we know in life that when something seems to be, this is something that I have to achieve, this is a minimum, we, we, we find within ourselves the ability and the creativity and the determination to make it happen. When we think of something as a bonus, as a luxury, as something that if only would work out, we are a lot more compromising and a lot more settling with our failure to live up to that. Yes? So I was, I don't know if I missed what you said in the very beginning, but we, most of the introduction on these two oaths before we're born. Before we're born, we're, we, we make these both. We, we're told, we, we are, we are. We ask well, so, okay, so there's a concept, I, I, I didn't explain that. Okay. Um, there's a concept in Jewish law where an oath is administered to a person, okay? Which is where instead of you taking an oath voluntarily, the basin makes you take an oath, the court makes you take an oath. So an example of that would be, let's say I am, you asked me to watch your bicycle. And then you come back and say, time my bicycle back. And I say, it went missing, it was stolen. 
So now, in strictly speaking, halacha, thing, what would happen is you would take, you say, oh, like, you say, well, I mean, how do I know the bicycle is really stolen? Maybe you're just negligent. Maybe you're keeping it for yourself, right? So, what, what do you do? You go to court and you say, I want my bicycle back. I think Rabbi Kaufman's keeping it for himself, or maybe he was just negligent. He owes me for the bicycle. And what do I have to do? I don't have to bring witnesses that I wasn't negligent. I'm bringing witnesses that was stolen. It's sufficient that I take an oath that it was in fact stolen. And what if I don't want to take that oath? And if the basin will say, we're going to make you take the oath or we're going to make you pay, you get to pick. Now, there are some cases where the basin won't even give you the option. It'll make you take the oath either way. So, for instance, let's say you want to sue somebody in basin. And you know that I, I have testimony that would benefit you. And you want me to testify. And I don't want to testify. I'm being a jerk. I don't want to testify. Now, I have a biblical obligation to testify, by the way. So you take me to court and you say, Rabbi Kaufman has testimony, you won't testify. And the basin will say, okay, Rabbi Kaufman, do you have testimony? I say, no. And they say, okay, well, if you don't have testimony to the, that has any bearing on this, you must take an oath. And if you don't take the oath, then you must testify. And since you claim you not to have testified, you must take the oath. They will, and you can impose an oath. And there's many such situations um, where the basin will impose an oath on the person. So the idea is right before you are born, your soul is imposed. You must... You must swear to do two things. Be a tzaddik and not to be a rasha. And, and again, the explanation we're saying is, why is the second oath given? Because being a tzaddik, while something we should aspire to, is not something we necessarily are privileged to achieve. It is not something fully in our control. But we should, at the bare minimum, not be a rasha, meaning we should not let anything come above and over our connection to Hashem, which is, again, the trait of the Bainani. Yes? It doesn't say. I can make something up. Okay. I don't know. Probably depends on a variety of different halachic issues and what kind of oath and what kind of situation. But imagine a situation where even one could do so. So it's not about, they're not really different, but it's how it's said that makes it. They're, no, they're, they're, they're two different oaths. One is be a tzaddik. So what would it mean to fill that oath? It would mean to achieve a state where you are granted the gift of the love of Hashem, the divine bliss, like experiencing an Aiden, resulting in a complete detachment from any positive feelings towards anything ungodly. And the other is not to be a Russian, not to let any temptation or any feeling get in the way of your connection to Hashem because that's the thing that's truly most important to you. Those are not the same thing, right? One is to be a tzaddik, one is not to be a rasha. You could fulfill the second by being a bain, you can't fulfill the first by being a bain. That means being a bain has become a minimum expectation of our lives rather than That's right. Even though in reality it's quite hard. Okay, now, I want to stop and say, um, is this really fair? No. Why? And if your argument is because it's hard, or because very few people achieve it, I'm going to make some sort of sound which will imply me mocking you. So it, it it's unfair fair. because it's not. You can't guarantee. You can't make a promise to someone you can't. Okay, so, so that, that, we have, that, that we're going to come back to. I'm talking about this idea that we should aspire to be a tzaddik, but our bare minimum should be a bainani. Like, is that fair? That, that idea that I'm talking about. What? What's against her nature? 
Well, that's exactly the point. What is a Jew? No. No. You're right, but you're very wrong. A, a, a Jew is a godly soul wrapped up in wrapping paper. The wrapping paper is a rational soul. Wrapped around that is a... Wrapped around that is a... Body. Now, if that's what you are, what should you aspire to in life? To be a godly soul. To be what kind of a being? A being who delights in pizza and chocolate and compliments? A being who gets annoyed because someone cut them off in traffic? That is becoming of the kind of being you really are. It behooves you as a godly soul to get annoyed because someone cut you off in line for your chocolate frappuccino. Really? No, that's a little bit, you know, insulting. On the other hand, if I think of myself as a person who has a godly soul, well, then, you know, I have a godly soul. I also have other things going on in life, right? I have a mortgage, too. What? In other words, right, objectively, exactly, objectively, we're a soul who has a person. Now, subjectively, and Altar says later on, subjectively, we are a person with a soul. Right? But now, think about this. When you educate a child, okay? When you educate a child, did I tell you the story about the, about the rabbi with the kid walking on the table? Okay. So, in that story, I was pointing out that just because someone's doing something wrong doesn't mean it's an educational thing, right? Okay. So what would be an example where you have to educate a child? A child needs education. Chinuch. That's across the street. Even there I would say that, that's, um, that that barely qualifies as education. Teach them how to read. Teaching them how to read. You have to teach them how to read, right? Okay. What's the difference? Because running into the street is like Basically, what you have to do, really, honestly, is you have to get the child to survive until, like, you know, 12. Because once they hit 12, chances are, like, their awareness of reality means they're not going to run to a street, right? In other words, it's not really education. You see what I'm saying? Like, but reading is different. Why is reading different? That's something that a person has to be taught. Now, here's the question. Let's move past, like, you know, kindergarten learning your olive base now. Let's talk about, like, actual reading, right? So, like, I have one of my daughters. She's in second grade. She used to read. She had everything. She comes home with a partial thing. She has to, every week she has to come with a partial thing. She has to read it. It's long. It's tedious. I find it unpleasant to listen to. <laughs> Why? She doesn't read. It, like, it, it, she, she, she reads haltingly. It's like, Ubeze Yuvan it's like, it's like two pages of that. It's hard to listen to. Okay. okay. It's important. Okay. Why is it important? Can I say something controversial? Okay. If you said no, you would probably say it. It's a rhetorical device. It's not important. After all, she's just a girl. She doesn't need to learn to read. She needs to learn how to cook and clean. She doesn't need to learn to read. Why? <laughs> so I ask you again, why is it important? 
Because nowadays girls need to know how to read just as much as boys do. We want her to be educated. We want her to have a good, engaged life. If she doesn't know how to read, there's going to be certain parts of and so what? She'll be miserable. She'll become a feminist. <laughs> I don't know that, that, that. I don't know. I think. I think depriving people of knowledge might be a better strategy than being a feminist. I don't know. No. She'll be a feminist. So that she'll be that feminist. What does reading allow? Let's not be. Let's let's be a little bit. Like, what does reading allow? Learning. That's learning. Yeah. Okay. What is she? A person, yeah? A person has a mind? As a person with a mind, is it... Is there any... You're not an animal, right? You're not a dishwasher. You're a person with a mind. If you're a person with a mind, it behooves you to be able to access knowledge, right? Right? Like, that has to permeate the whole idea, like, the whole idea of learning, right? In other words, the exact opposite. You're like, what do you need to learn stuff for? In other words... That first line, which I don't actually believe, is basically reducing or, or, or reducing or saying you're not really a full person, right? But if you're a person, a person is someone with a mind. A mind has a thirst for knowledge. Well, if you're, gonna, if you're going to, to acknowledge that that's the truth of the kind of creature you are, then it behooves you to develop the skills necessary to gain knowledge, which means the ability to read. And this is important. Do grades matter? Let's go a little bit deeper. Does it matter? Does it matter about grades? No. Does it matter about profession? No, it was like this. Is it important for her to read so that she can get a good job? No. No. It's important for her to read because as a person, a person, one of the core elements of a human being is a mind. A mind is thirsty for knowledge. And if you don't learn how to read, what are you denying about yourself? Your humanity. That's right. That's, that's the education. That has to permeate. You're a person. Treat yourself as such. It's hard for you to read? Okay. It's hard for you to read. Deal with it. Now, we can then soften the message and make it acceptable and make it work with it. But like the core message is what do you mean? If you're a person, you should live up to what it is to be a person. A person is a being with a mind. It's not an animal. It's not just I take care of my, my, my needs to survive, whether those needs be basic like food, air, water, or more complex needs like functioning society, having money to pay for things. No, I'm a human being. A human being is a being who has an ability and deeper than just an ability, a need to really know things. If you are going to be honest with yourself what that is, then you need to expect of yourself and aspire to, to that, right? Now, what if a person, unfortunately, is not so gifted and reading is very hard? And they're not going to sit down and read the complete works of William Shakespeare in a night. And they're not going to become, you know, a, 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 a true um, possessor of knowledge in, the, in, the, in the, the most ideal sense. Is that an excuse to therefore just go on and write off reading and become illiterate then? No. At the very least, still be literate, right? So, so, so you're not the world's most profoundly knowledgeable person. You're not the wisest and deepest human being who walked the earth. At least be, at least be literate. So that comes from a sense of, of, of recognizing who and what you are. Mm, I like that. Okay, so now, if the objective truth is I am a godly soul, a literal piece of godliness, whatever that means, then what should my life look like? 
What should drive me to passion? What should frustrate me? What should bring me joy? Things which are exclusively godly. And anything which is ungodly is unbecoming. And if I can't get to that place for whatever reason, my soul is insufficiently developed, God hasn't guaranteed me the gift of that experience, at the very least I shouldn't settle for compromising and turning something else into the most important part of my life. In other words, this idea that aspire to be a tzaddik but demand as a minimum expectation being a baini stem from a basic idea that what are we ultimately? What are we really? We're the godly soul. Even though it doesn't necessarily feel that way. See, it, it's perfectly fair and reasonable if you're starting from the right starting point. A person who looks at another person and says, you're a human being. You have a mind. In as much as you have a mind, you should know as much as you can possibly know. At the very least, know how to read. It's a very reasonable expectation, even if it's hard for them to know how to read. But if a person looks at you, you're a peasant, you're a girl, you're one step up from an animal, you know, you're, you're a sophisticated piece of property. Well, who needs you to know how to read, right? What good is that going to do? I mean, I need this person, I need to know how to read for some technical reason, but... If you start off with a lowly sense of what you are, then higher aspirations seem like an imposition from above. If you start off with a loftier sense of what you really are, then higher aspirations seem just and fair, even when they're not attainable. Do you hear the shift that I'm trying to bring out? The other one's going, you have to try and be a tzaddik, even though it's unheard of. It's like, wait a minute, you're a godly soul. You're about to enter a world, a world full of klipa, of the things we conceal godliness, a world of temptation, a world where everything gets distorted. Basically, remember who you are, and even if you can't fully live up to it, don't, don't, don't settle for a lie. Don't, don't, don't start denying the truth. Right, that's the baiting, right? At least don't deny the truth. Don't live as if something's more important than Hashem, because that's not true. Even if you don't necessarily feel the full, the full richness of what it is to be a godly being. So it's not meant to be read or understood or felt or practiced as an imposition, but rather as a kind of staying true to oneself, both in aspiration and in expectation. It, which then leads me to an important idea. What is the idea of making an oath as opposed to just an obligation generally? What's the difference? It sounds like it's not an option not to do it. Well, like, right? both, are, I mean, both, both you have the free will to disregard. Like you could make an oath and break it. You could be obligated and then fail to meet your obligations. Well, the What's the difference? Oath is you saying Oath is you. Right. In other words, an obligation is imposed from without. An oath is imposed from from within. And so Chassidus elaborates on this. I'm not going to go into about the, the, the anatomy of the soul, which part of the soul gets clothed in the body, which part of the soul doesn't. But the basic idea is that the idea of the oath is there's a, there's a deeper truth of who you are as a godly being. That should be the thing that governs what you aspire to. And that should be the, what, certainly what governs what you expect of yourself. So the fact that we relate to being a tzaddik as this unrelatable thing is actually a kind of a, a self-deception, a self-alienation, where a person, they're, they're not even acknowledging what they are. It's like, imagine you have a little girl grows up, and her mindset is that all she is is like, you know, someone who has children and washes dishes, and like, that's, that's the totality of her being. 
Right? The idea that someone would, would, would tell her she should try and know things and at the very least know how to read sounds like what's, what's all these unnecessary impositions from outside. But if she had a sense that she's a human being, first and foremost, human being with a mind, humanity means that you, you, you can and, and yearn to know, well then the aspiration to know and the expectation to at least be literate is experienced entirely differently. It's something that's imposed, it's something, it's something that's imposed, it's something demanded from within, not imposed from without. And that's how to read this. And why, again, is it so difficult for us to be a Benini? Is because we don't generally aspire to be a tzaddik. And why don't we generally aspire to be a tzaddik? Because we are comfortable thinking of ourselves as a person with this annoying godly soul, like giving us Jewish guilt from time to time. And as long as that's how we conceive of ourselves, we will stay stuck as a Russia. Yes? How does? Is it, is it because we're human beings also? Like, and we just relate to that more? Like, Why are you asking? Because if, if... It's not even like a person has to dig so deep to find this. It's not even that. It's so... Like this, it's just the truth. So. Mm-hmm. Why is it so? I don't have a very long question. I, I can't answer it. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I make an observation though? Yes. This idea, when you take this idea on the abstract and you compare it to our lived experience, there's a lot of swirling thoughts and feelings and, and a mess inside. And, and that produces possibly many questions which have answers. But it also produces just a general unsettledness. And I'm gonna use, use an analogy for, analogy for something else. If you see suffering in the world, so there's a question, right? God is good, God runs the world, suffering, how does it exist? Questions, okay. Setting aside all of the questions, as a good person, when you see suffering that makes you feel uncomfortable, should that discomfort ever go away? You're like, oh, suffering, yeah, yeah, it's fine, I understand what the purpose of suffering, not a big deal. Right? That, that's not supposed to, whatever the questions have answers to things shouldn't take away the basic discomfort with encountering suffering, especially the suffering in someone else, yes? Would that make any kind of intuitive sense? Okay. So the fact that in our lives, what we're saying here is not so simple. Not so, like on paper, it's very clear. It's, it's the truth. And in life, it's very messy. As much as that has all sorts of questions which may have answers, setting all of those questions and answers aside, there's a basic discomfort between the tension between objective reality and subjectively how we experience things, yes? Should that tension ever go away? No. Or is that tension actually the fuel that drives a person to grow? Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, sometimes the idea of having an explanation is a way to avoid confronting something. If I can explain the suffering in front of me, I don't have to confront the actual suffering and the 
and how it, it, it feels wrong, and it feels wrong because I have a sense of goodness, a sense of godliness, a sense of justice. So you're saying there's not really an answer to the question and just it's supposed to be this uncomfortable thing that we're supposed to live with. And channel. Forever. Well, this is the, so this is what we call an internal exile. An internal exile is where there's your, the objective reality of what you are doesn't match the subjective reality as you experience. And by the way, even if you're a Bainani, even if you succeed in never letting anything coming in, coming in, the, in the face of your connection with Hashem, nothing compromises that connection with Hashem, right? That my innate need to be connected to Hashem overrides everything in my life. Even then, you're still in a state of exile because you still feel in a way that belies, that gives, give, bears false witness to the ultimate truth about yourself, which is that you're a godly being. And so even, even later on in Tanya, the altar has to come and comfort the baby that there is kind of an exile, find purpose in that exile and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah. Like, if you want to know like, why we would want Mashiach so much, this takes you there, right? It's just not true. Like, it's just, it's just not true, though. Like, it, I don't... It, what do you mean it's just not true? Like, it's just not... Use a few more words. Reality is that we're one way and we act another way. <laughs> That's it. Like that's it. Now I want to add one other thing. The great Chassidic Rebbe, Rabbi famously said that if God, if you had put all of the delights of this world in books and all of godliness out in our experience, we would all be very righteous. But you put the truth of godliness in books and all of the unholiness out there to experience, and you know, what do you expect to happen? In other words, there is a problem that you can't, when, 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 when there's no experience of anything, it's very hard to, to fight your experience with, with, with abstractions, with ideas. Okay? Um, to put it in, you know, there's an idea in Hasidus. The mission says, ain bina, ain das, ain das, ain bina, that if there's no bina, then you can't have das. If there's no das, you can't have bina, which creates the obvious question, like how do you start? So one of the ways is explaining Hasidus like this. If you go through some kind of challenge in life, when you come out the other end, is your sense of yourself and your reality the same as it was before? Or has it been altered? Alter. And the bigger the challenge, the bigger the thing, the greater it is. So much so, sometimes it's hard to really identify with the way you were before. Okay? So that sense of being connected in who you are and what's real, right? we call that the person's das. Right? That, 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 that aspect of the mind which relates to reality as what is real, what is true, what is, what is, what is, what is pertinent. Okay. If you go through the experience like that, you have a problem, which is you still need to, um, as they say in the therapeutic culture, process it, make sense of it, integrate it into the rest of your life. Otherwise, what ends up happening? It's like a shock. That's right. It's a shock to the system. So if you have no DAS, if you have no transformative experience as your raw material, sorry, 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 if you, the other way, if you have no bina, you have no understanding, then you can't really implement that transformative, that das into your life. It doesn't hold, it doesn't stay. In the contrary, it's actually quite destructive. 
But the reverse is also true. If you just deal with abstractions and theories and it's not grounded in any real experience in yourself, if you don't have any das, then you don't really understand what you're talking about. Which is why, this goes back to the thing we spoke about, Bidnagunim and I meant, and other aspects of, there is, there's a whole part of Hasidus, which is about, for lack of words, we'll call it the lifestyle, what's called, what's called in, in, in the original, dark Hasidus, the ways of Hasidus, the Nigunim, the Febrengen, the, 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 the actual dealing with challenges, the sense of community, the sense of being an individual and not really, on you know, some level, not, all these things, right, the, the, obviously, the whole dynamic of Chassid Rebbe, all these things come together to shift our experiences in different ways. But they're only integrated by having a way of making sense of them. And so, just like a person who encounters suffering, you have on the one hand, you have an inner sense of conscience, you have an inner sense of morality, you have an inner sense of God's goodness. And you also see the evil in front of you, the suffering in front of you, and that creates tension. And then you need a way of not just explaining away the tension, but a way to process that, to channel that into something constructive. Well, similarly here, that aspiring to be a tzaddik and not settling for anything less than being a bainani is a way of making sense of things, but you still need to have experiences or, 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 or awarenesses of things that are beyond just the human element. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. So sometimes this can be very, very subtle. Like a person, you know, I don't know, like people have, for instance, um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, um, a story, a few stories. So one story is there was a, a friend of mine in yeshiva, and he for a very long time, as a, as a young, young man, he went around looking for, not God, people looking around, he was looking for religion. The difference being what? Spiritual. Right, a set of rules. Like he had this, this strong sense that there is a creator and he wants us to live in a certain way. How does the creator want us to live? Like that's what he was looking for. Okay. And he knew it wasn't Judaism. How do you know it wasn't Judaism? Because his parents were members of a conservative synagogue and he, talking to the rabbi, it was very clear that the rabbi thought of God as some sort of metaphysical abstraction, you know, to represent our human inclination for morality or something like that. It's like, okay, so this is clearly not it. And they went off to college and discovered Christianity. Um, and then he discovered Catholicism. And I don't know if you know anything about Catholicism, but as far as religions go, it does a good job of you know, playing all the religious notes of like, there is a way one ought to live and there's like real consequences and like, as opposed to like the more liberal strands of Christianity where there's a lot of sense of you know, updating what God wants based on the mood and the time. And he was like, wow, I finally found like, what, you know, there's, there's, what, what does the creator want for me in life? How should I live? What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? What are the consequences for living up to that? What are the consequences for not living up to that? And they became very involved in Catholicism. He was very into it. His parents were not very happy about this. <laughs> So did he have a kind of an, a sense of something, an experience of something, yeah? What did he not have? He didn't have an awareness of what, what, what is this thing? So he, he told me that the first time that like, there's an organization called Jews for Judaism that deals with um, Jews who get involved in Christianity. <laughs> Jews for Judaism, I understand that. 
So he remembers the, the, the first time that like, he started like, going to like, a regular shul, and it was like, very shocking to him because like, what do you mean? there's all these people and they're doing things and they're like, there's a way you have to behave and there's what halacha allows and what it doesn't allow. And he was like, oh, so this is what I was looking for. Now, it, it's a very cute story, and, but, but on some level, that's true of every Jew. And the idea is that you need to do both things. You just strengthen those kind of senses on the one hand, but you also need to give a framework for processing it to integrate it into your life. When we're sitting here studying a text, the primary, primary, not the only, but the primary purpose of studying the Hasidic texts is to create that sense to create that awareness, create that thoughts, create that, that, that amorphous feeling inside. You don't really know what that is, but it, it, it's intention with everything. Or to give structure, to, to put it in perspective, to, to help guide a person as to what it actually means. It's the second thing. And so what can end up happening is if a person's understanding of the ideas, our <laughs> strips their sense of things, right? It seems very lopsided. Now, to be fair, studying chassidus also strengthens the other thing, but in a very subtle way. And this is something in the back that in Chassidus, there's the study of Chassidus, but there's the, the, the path of Chassidus, there's the ways of Chassidus, such as the Febrengin, the, the Nigunim, the going out of your way to helping another Jew, etc., 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 the overcoming yourself and things that you know are really wrong. And those create transformative experiences, which again need to be put in a framework. And so together, there's like a, a positive, constructive tension that you can hopefully build off of. But if that gets out of whack, the opposite person just can feel very lost and frustrated. They have sense of things they don't know what to do with, or they have all these ideas that just seem detached from reality, and then, yeah. Yes? Is that Yes, yes, because it was always understood, it was even understood in Chabad, that, that the, the weight should be placed on the, the dark is the path of the Chassidus, first and foremost. Which is why even so, for instance, in the Chabad culture, the main, the main part of studying Hasidus is as a practice rather than as a means to knowledge. Um, I was sitting by Fabrengen on Shabbos, and um, so I, I told you that men's Fabrengens and women's Fabrengens are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a men's Fabrengen, and um, the, 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 there was, not everyone was sober, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. um, rightly or wrongly, but that was the case. And... Um, so I, I, someone had asked me to, to, to study with him Chassidus Shabbos morning before davening. Um, I normally give a class, but Shabbos of Arthur, where, where the Chabad custom is to say the whole tillim, I don't give a class. Um, and I said, sure. He said, so what time? He says, I'm going to meet you at 8.30. He says, okay, so I'll finish till before then. Fine. So 8.30, I'm waiting for me to show up. And there's just other two people in the show, and they asked me if I would sit with them and help them with the Chassidic discourse, the mimer that they're learning. So I said, sure, until he comes. So I sat with him from for about, you know, until, I don't know, until davening started, it was like an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. And he never came, it turned out he was sick, but didn't get out of bed the whole Shabbos. So the person was supposed to learn the thing. Anyway, so I was in explaining it, this, and that was all very good. And you know, when I'm teaching things, I get very excited and very involved. Anyway, so it was now Shabbos afternoon, we're sitting with Febregen, and the rabbi of the show, he, um, Trying to th- I don't remember the exact wording, but basically he says, you annoy me. That's what he says. He looks at me, he's like, you annoy me. You, you just, you just, you ruin my day. <laughs> I don't remember the exact wording. This is in Hebrew. I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean? He says, you just sit there. 
and you talk and you explain. Where's the, where's the devotion? You sit and you don't sit it's like a chassid. A chassid sits with, with one line and tries to absorb what it really means. Like it's a practice, it's a ritual. And you're sitting there pontificating like you know what you're talking about. You just ruined my, like you ruined my whole Shabbos. <laughs> and he goes on and on and on. And the truth is he's right. Like there's something off about <laughs> taking all the ideas and having that disproportion. Right? The same way, and I mean, it's not the same halacha consequences as my friend who have a very strong sense that Hashem wants me to live a certain way, but no way of putting that in its proper context and lead a person to commit idolatry. The opposite, a person can have a very good understanding of all the things, and it's not, the underlying experience is not there. The sense that, that my neshama is real, that God is real, is not in proportion. And so... Um, there's, a, there's an old Hasidic custom, which is that when one person um, points out another person's flaws at a forbringing, you do not defend yourself. Because either they're saying the truth, which means you need to hear it, or they're not saying the truth, in which case, why do you need to defend yourself? It's not about your ego. But, you know, it wasn't pleasant to hear, but on reflection, there's a truth to it. In other words, that, that, that you can escape into questions and answers and understanding, and, and, but it, if you take what this idea is saying, what do you mean? If you're really a godly being, clothed in a rational soul, clothed in, clothed in an animal soul, clothed in a body, right? Then you should have some sense that the thing I ought to aspire to, because I've taken oath, I, it, 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 I don't like this wording because it's a little bit too egotistical, well, I'll use it anyway. I owe it to myself that that's what I should aspire to, and at the very minimum, not to let anything ungodly compromise my connection to Hashem. And the more that a person is really approaching from that place, and then there's a, a proper balance, if you will, of the das, the experience of that, and the being of the understanding of that, then the being abandoned goes from being something that is very lofty to something which is very real and very, very reasonable and something a person feels the need to live up to. Um, and very often we get hung up on how different being abandoned is from like our kind of standard pattern of life. And we to make it unattainable. It's very minimal. Like, is that the way we're supposed to look at being a tzaddik? Like the way most people view abandonment as like something that's right. kind of unachievable? But even the tzaddik, as much as it's unachievable, it's unachievable because of a technicality, not because in essence it's beyond me. In essence, I'm a godly being, so I should be a tzaddik. In practice, it, it depends on a gift from Hashem. It depends on my soul being sufficiently developed, which are things that are beyond my control so much. So, okay, there's a technical problem here. Right? There's, you know... The, 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 there's, there's, there's a very big difference between saying you can't put the ocean in a cup of water and you can't, you can't put an ocean in a cup and you can't put an idea in a cup. You can't put an idea in a cup because an idea is, a, is, a, is an abstraction. A cup is physical, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Why can't you put the ocean in a cup? The ocean is too big. The cup is too small. But in principle, if you had a big enough cup or a small enough ocean, it would work, right? So I can't be a tzaddik. Why? Because in principle, I am being a tzaddik have no connection or there's a technical problem. My soul is not sufficiently developed and even if it was sufficiently developed, I might, Hashem might not grant me the gift. But as a godly being, what would be the appropriate thing for me to experience as I go through life? Divine bliss and a complete detachment from anything God. That would be appropriate. That would be fitting. And if for whatever technical reasons that's not going to happen, I should not again then settle for anything which actually denies the truth, right? 
allowing my animal soul to overcome my godly soul and move me away from Hashem. So it's, even the fact that I, it's not even, even the way we relate to a Bainani is in a certain sense, not the way you should relate to a Tzad. It's not just you aspire to be, there's, on a certain sense, like we would add an ego element to it, and you really shouldn't, but I deserve to be a Tzadik. Why? Right. Right. So, you know, a little girl should say, what do you mean? I, 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 again, there's an ego issue, but set it as a, I deserve to know. I'm a person. A person should know things. A person is not just an animal. A person is not just property. A person is a, is a mind with, a, with, with, with inquisitiveness and yearning. That, of course you should know things. And if it's hard to know, at least, at least be literate. At least don't close it off completely. Good. Dumb pontificating. <laughs> it's a problem. Afterwards, I, I, I called my Mashpir, who's an old Russian chassid with a white beard, and asked him about it. He told me true? some things. Oh. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this part. You can not quote for it. I'll tell you what he said. It's like a logical shock. Because, right, like, we are learning stuff that So there's a lot of different things. I will tell you three things. Number one, after every time you learn something and you are moved intellectually, shocked emotionally, inspired, I don't care what, but somehow you're not in the same place as a person as you were before, it's very important to do something, make an actual change in your life, which is and the condition for this is that it be very, very concrete and very, very small. In other words, whatever a person experiences, the only way to integrate it, this is something that's not really elaborated here, but it's elaborated other places in Chassidus, is like the first measure is that it has to be connected to our most tangible part of our life, which is our actual behavior. So for instance, a person walks in, they're blown away, and they're like, they need something, they need it, not to like, You can make this overly complicated. Don't not make it overly complicated. And the person says, you know what? I don't know what all this is. But what's for sure is at the end of the day, what all this was about does mean I should, next time I have a glass of water, make sure, make sure I make, say the bracha saying all the words. Or something little like that. Words, at the end of the day, this is like, I don't know what this is. But what is clearly true is that whatever it is, it does boil down on some level to being more careful with doing Torah mitzvahs. So picking something very concrete and very small and saying, okay, this stuff, which I, I don't know what it is, I haven't processed it, part of it comes down to this something very, very tiny, very concrete. And it doesn't have to be a long-term resolution. Just the idea that it is very concrete and smaller, the better. Because the idea here is, and that creates like, like a ship at sea that has an anchor. Okay. That's one thing. Not a long-term resolution. No, it doesn't have to be that. From now on, I'm going to make sure to do X. Saying it's not forever, just take something behaviorally. Yeah, even just now, yeah, today, yeah, right. tomorrow. You walk out of the class, you're like, uh, like you know what? Yeah, it's literally that. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know where you're holding the in, but like, you know what? When I eat dinner, I'm going to make sure to say the brachas in the right order tonight. Like, whatever that was does connect to this somehow. I don't know how, but like. It, this is about God. Torah is about being connected to God. 
We're going to eat a few different things. Which bracha comes first? I'm just going to make sure to say the bracha in the right order. It, what it does is it kind of bookends everything. It, 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 it keeps it from just everything floating away. That's one thing. Um, another thing is very important, I can't emphasize enough, of a person having a mentor. Not teachers, mentors. Not friends, mentors. And a teacher is someone you learn things from. That's what I'm doing. A friend is someone you discuss things with. A mentor is someone who you allow them to shape how you live your life. You can have different mentors for different areas in life, but you can't have more than one mentor for one area of life. How should I approach prayer? How should I approach strengthening my observance? How should I educate my children? It's a very different kind of thing. It's important to have mentors. Obviously, that's a discussion in its own right. Okay. Um, and the last thing is to remember that there's a rule in Kabbalah. I'm going to tell you the rule in Kabbalah language because I just think it sounds cool, and then I'll explain to you what it means. But if you keep this rule in mind, it will help you in life. Whenever the light reveals itself, what happens is first the light reveals itself, it makes an impact, leaves a dent, and withdraws. The second time the light comes, it can fill the, it can fill the, it can fill the hole. So just, the idea is that when you first encounter something, what happens? You don't hold on to it. What does it do? It leaves something. And that thing is a void. That thing is an emptiness. That thing is an unpleasantness. That thing is not... But what is that void, what does that emptiness end up becoming? The vessel for which you can then actually hold on to it the second time you encounter it. What that means is everything in life, the first time we encounter it, it will not be a pleasant experience long term. It might be inspiring and then we fall off from the inspiration. It might be confusing and we're bewildered. It might be whatever. But the idea that we can just like absorb it and integrate it never happens. If you can absorb and integrate it, then it's not really new. It's something you've encountered before and are prepared to receive already. And what that means is the, the, you, you, the more you absorb that, uh, that message, you, you drop the expectation that I'm supposed to walk out of something having it all put together. On the contrary, the fact that it shakes me up, the fact that it belittles, the fact that I inspire and drop off, whatever it is, dealing with that bumping in in a kind of not such a you know, constructive way, actually dealing with that properly means that the next time around when I encounter this, I'll be able to absorb it more properly. And when you have that as your kind of model of life, it works very well. When you don't, what ends up happening is you're also getting this perpetual frustration. It's like cooking. Some people believe that cooking involves mixing all the ingredients together and then getting it hot. Do you know anybody like that? I know people like that. They believe, okay, these are the ingredients. There's a pot. You put the ingredients in the pot. You turn it on. It's now hot. So now I should have food. But that's not really how it works. It's such a male perspective. Mm, no, it's not. No? No. Well, I'm an advanced female. What? And I'm an advanced female. What is cooking? <laughs> I don't know if it's male or it's female. I just... <laughs> I think it's. I think. I, I think. It, I think it comes from a person. I think it's from a person not really relating to the, the food as a reality. Like, what is cooking? 
cooking is working with the qualities that the food has to make it be different than what it is, right? So, like for instance, okay, um, dough. Time is a very important factor in dough. Why? Why? Not just to rise. That, that what everyone knows. What else? Anyone else know about? What? Gluten. You know, what is gluten? It's protein. And the protein, the protein is all bunched up. And what happens if you, both time and, and pressure, this is the word meaning comes in, what happens to the proteins? They unfold. And when they unfold, they start to like, if you have a bunch of fibers, you can make a thread. And what gives dough its ability to hold shape? And, other, and the thing is like, you have to respect that. You have to work with that, right? You have to work with, right? And that's true with everything cooking. Like, what is the nature of fat? What's the nature of salt? What's the nature of heat? And, what's the, and work with that and, la- and then, right? And you have to respect that, okay. But if you don't have that, you're just perpetually frustrated. You're like, what do you mean? I followed the recipe. And my, my, my son was making something. He's like, I followed the recipe and it didn't work. And I said, recipes are suggestions. So, okay. It tells you to put the thing in for a certain amount of time. The time is meant to, time helps something do so. In this case, he was talking about he made pizza and the pizza came out like, like crackery. Because he, he followed the instructions. He put the, te- the oven at the temperature it said for the time and said, okay, but, but what, what's, what, is the, what is the heat and time supposed to do to the dough? So that's what you have to be, you have to like connect to that and be aware of that and deal with that. Okay, so the thing is, going back to what we're talking about, when you encounter something that's beyond and that's bewildering, what is supposed to happen? How is that supposed to work? Relate to it for what it is. Respect what it is to be a person. Respect it is that something is, is, is beyond and, and how those interact and then make your adjustment, adjustments. And that means, as, a, as the rule is, that when a human being encounters something new, the new thing make, comes and disappears and leaves a void, leaves an emptiness, leaves a crack in its wake. And dealing with that void, that crack properly, means that you now have the tool to absorb that thing the second time it shows up. And if you can learn to see yourself that way and relate to yourself that way, you can adjust how you relate to things in a way that you can be very constructive with things. So those are three suggestions. Number one. Practical application. Practical, and the thing is not, how do I apply the idea I learned? It doesn't have to, whatever I learned has something to do with Hashem. Hashem at the end of the day comes down to Torah mitzvahs. Make a practical, concrete, Increasing your tournaments is even if it's temporary. Because, because you know that ultimately these two things are somehow connected, even if you don't see how. Second thing is a person needs mentorship. Right? Which is not just people to talk things over with, where you can then just agree to disagree. Not someone just to provide you with knowledge and information, but someone who you really trust to help you shape how you approach something. And the third thing is to know that, that you never really absorb something the first time around. In fact, when something is new, it, it may raise you up, but then it crash down again and dealing with that crashing down again dealing with that bewilderment dealing with that frustration dealing with that whatever it is makes you able to really absorb it the second time around and that's true in everything even if it's not a spiritual thing even becoming religious for that matter the person becomes religious whatever they saw in being religious will leave I guarantee it it will leave and what's left in its wake an empty religiosity which is really really frustrating 
Because an empty secularism is not as frustrating as an empty religiosity. Why not? Religiosity is supposed to have meaning. It's supposed to have truth. It's supposed to have God. And what you're left with is like, you know, stale, binding ritual that constrains how you live your life. And if you can somehow deal with that properly, then what happens? Then, then you have the means to actually absorb the tr- a truer, more authentic meaning of Judaism. But then if you think about that, that's also in some sense limited. And so the process, that's why we have a yearly cycle of things. It's important to know these things. Yes? Is the thing you said about the, um, forget how you word it, the thing about leaving the board and the second time it, you can absorb it, does that connect as far as you say, uh, and the twice? Yes. That the first, the idea that many Nagunim at the standards are said twice is the first time you have the problem is that it, you, you hear it, but you don't really hear it. The second time you can really hear it, that there is that idea. Because the first time it's there, and it's like, yeah, yeah, there is that idea. There is that idea. Yes. Yeah, but when you know something, it changes it completely. Um, like, when you have an ache, if you know that the ache is part of a healing process, you experience the ache entirely differently than if you think the ache is because something was wrong with you, right? It's not just now you've managed your expectations, the entire way it becomes part of your lived experience is altered. It's not the same. Context changes everything about it. You just think of a very simple example, right? Somebody who, when they study something, I, I, I'll give you a different example. So my, my son wants, is moving to a, 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 a pre-yeshiva program for next year. So it's like he still stays at home, but it's like basically kind of like yeshiva for next year. And so he had to get tested to get uh, allowed in. And uh, he's brought for Hashem, he has a good reputation. So they were going to let him in before without the test, but I thought it was good for him to go through the test like everyone else. So he prepared the Gemara, and he prepared the, the, the Rashi, and I helped him with the Tosfos. And he was like very, very nervous, but he was really prepared. And sit down with the, the person who was supposed to administer the test. And the person's not, not really, at that point, like studying that particular part of the Talmud, but he's capable of studying. So he just looks at the pages and kind of refreshes himself. And he starts asking my son questions. And my son, you know, knows the answers. And he says, quite out, I'm trying to trip him up. I'm trying to ask him a question that, that's going conf- to confuse him, that he's going to... Um, and he wasn't able to, Baruch Hashem, because like, he wasn't totally like, refreshed on that particular thing, and my son had prepared very well, Baruch Hashem, and so like, everything he'd said, my, my son was able to, to, to say clearly. I mean, so, but afterwards, I was speaking to my son. He's 13. He's like, why is, the teacher, why is this person trying to trip you up? Why are they trying to... It's important, like, like, it's, like he, can, he clearly picks up on the fact that he's trying to ask him questions that are going to trip up my son. And at one point he even says he's doing it. How's the 13-year-old supposed to take that? Doesn't sound, feel very good, does it, right? 
How do you know how strong somebody is? You see where, what they can't lift anymore, right? How do you really know how well somebody understands something? You see what trips them up, right? So he's not like within the realm of what's kind of normal. Like there's nothing I can bring up now in this thing. That, so you're, okay. So he, we haven't really seen the scope of your knowledge. But now just think about that. I'm sitting there and I know this. This is like clear, clear to me. So like I find the whole thing very cute. Right? Here's a kid who really prepared, knows what he's talking about. Someone is trying to like, see what the limits of his knowledge are. And within the scope of that age-appropriate thing, he's like, where his limits are beyond that. But my son's like, does he see it that way? Does he experience it that way? Or does he experience like someone's kind of like a little out to get it? So we talked about it right afterwards. And like he could, Putting it into that context, you go back and, and, and pick up, yeah, the person's attitude and body language wasn't actually antagonistic. It was like, oh, okay, so I see what's happening. You see, knowing how to put something in perspective totally changes how you experience it. Same thing with confusion, same thing with failure, everything. So it's not just like a technical, it's, it's a very big deal. But you're right, the first thing I said is the most important. All right, we'll hold it here. Tomorrow, Bez Hashem, we will continue. But I think this idea is very important that, that that if I'm a godly being, the only thing that, 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 is, that is in a certain sense just and fair is that I be a tzaddik. And, and if for whatever reason there's a technical problem, at least not to let ungodly things compromise my connection with Hashem. In other words, don't be rushed, be a baby. And if we don't exceed in even being a baby, if we're having that attitude, we're probably further along than the person who's a baby just by mere technicality. Thank you. All right.